I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Doc Exchange, a real stories podcast in partnership with the Grierson Trust. This is a brand new podcast that asks nonfiction filmmakers about the documentaries that have had a lasting impact on their lives and careers. I'm your host, June Jennings. I'm a writer and journalist based in New York and currently serve as the Engagement and Partnerships Manager for Field of Vision, an award-winning filmmaker-driven documentary unit. Every week, I'll ask a new filmmaker or filmmaking team about three documentaries connected by a single theme, that have made a meaningful impression on their work and life. This week, I'm joined by Brian Woods and Kate Blewett for a special episode reflecting on the 25th anniversary of their award-winning Channel 4 documentary, The Dying Rooms. We'll be diving into how they got extraordinary access to make their groundbreaking film, how the stakes were raised when they made Return to the Dying Rooms, and how documentaries like One Child Nation have sustained and elevated the conversation around China's so-called one-child policy. Brian is the founder and owner of True Vision Productions, an award-winning independent documentary film production company whose mission is to make social issue-oriented films. Recent multiple award-winning films include Catching a Killer, Behind Closed Doors, My Son the Jihadi, and Britain's Refugee Children. True Vision's awards include six Emmys, a BAFTA, two Peabody Awards, and the Amnesty International Documentary Award. Kate is a multi-award-winning documentary producer and director who makes global films focusing on issues of exploitation, abuse, and neglect. Kate has filmed in over 70 countries, sometimes going undercover, including China, the U.S., India, Russia, Thailand, and Bulgaria. Among her most highly regarded films are The Dying Rooms, China's Stolen Children, India's Carpet Slaves, and Bulgaria's Abandoned Children. Her achievements include five Emmys, three Peabody's, and three Royal Television Society Awards. Our interview was a really insightful look at how filmmaking practices and technologies have changed, as well as an acknowledgement of how important context and perspective are when telling stories of a sensitive and tragic nature. In this episode, we discuss abuse and violence towards children. Some listeners may find it upsetting or disturbing. Let's go to that interview. So, Brian and Kate, thank you for joining me on the Doc Exchange today. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Before we get into your documentary picks, I wanted to ask if you both could describe your paths to documentary filmmaking. How did you arrive at this particular moment? So I came out of college and didn't really know what I wanted to do. But friends of mine had gone into advertising and were saying, hey, you should come into advertising. So I thought, oh, that sounds fun. So I went into advertising and a little under a year later, I got fired and kind of woke up on the Monday morning having been fired and realized that 
my overwhelming sense was one of relief that I didn't have to go back to that agency. And I had a chance then to think, well, what do I really want to do? And by then I'd figured out that the thing that I was interested in, what I'd seen from the previous year was actually the making of the adverts. So I thought maybe I should try and become a a commercials director. And then essentially in trying to, in, you know, in writing lots of letters to people saying, please can I have a job? I got offered a job with a corporate video company, started making corporate videos, learned the trade of directing there, and then moved from there into broadcast and was making programs that, you know, weren't really, my heart wasn't totally in them. They were programs about business, then started a company doing the same. And we had a commission from the BBC to make a, a series about business. And then one day, this tall blonde woman walked into the office who had been actually given not my contact, but my partner's contact. And uh, she was very striking. And you thought, oh, who's who's that? Who's come to see Andy? And she introduced herself and they went off for a drink down by the river where our office was and came back about an hour later. And Andy said, um, oh, uh, Brian, this is Kate. And she's got this idea for... uh, a film in China that I think you should look after. And that was how we met. And the the rest, as they say, is history. So for me, I grew up as a child of an army father. So we moved around a great deal. And we were over in Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaya, in my childhood, and then other places as time went forwards. And I think I became very, very interested in the world around me. And I could see that my life as a child was different to some of the children in the neighborhoods and surrounding areas. I could see that there were differences in culture, what we ate, how we behaved, school's life, on all levels. I was very aware, very young. And so I think I had inside me a lot of interest in issues around me. When I grew up, (laughs) I took myself off to do a radio, film and television degree at Kent University, where I learned the basic skills of filmmaking. Um, You don't learn a great deal on a degree, but it certainly sets you up and it gives you lots of basic experience. And then when I left university, I got a job with a local video company. And then I went into an ad agency to learn more of the technical side of things. And then I moved to Hong Kong, where I started up my own partnership in making documentary films. So there was a sort of path, I feel, that I took from childhood that led me where I am today, really. So today we'll be discussing your film, The Dying Rooms, which first debuted on Channel 4 25 years ago. Can you take us through the origin story of that film? I was living in Hong Kong. And I had my own partnership and we were doing local films and regional films around the Asian region. And I came across somebody called Peter Woolrich and he was a journalist for the, one of the main newspapers in Hong Kong called the South China Morning Post. And in conversation one day, he said to me that he'd just gone off piste when he was on a, a piece about a football team and he'd wandered into an orphanage in the town of Nanning. And to his horror, he described to me that he had found children who were clearly dying, babies who were dying in their cots. And he thought he must be in the hospital section of the orphanage. And then he realized it was the main body of the orphanage. 
and there was no one around, no one looking at these babies or caring for them. And so I said, you know, I want to go in and have a look at this. I, I, I need to see this for myself. So I went on a research trip into China and basically took a very basic camera and a Chinese colleague. And we just wandered in and out of a couple of the orphanages. And you could see very quickly that the conditions there were really deeply neglectful on a level that I found very hard to digest in many ways. And so when I came back from that trip, I wrote a summary of what I found. I had photographs and things. And I decided I wanted to try and find a commissioner in England. So whilst I was Hong Kong based, so I reached out to two or three Indies or independents in the UK, one of which was Brian's company with his partner, Andy. And I ended up walking through the door of Brian's office and announcing myself and saying I had a project to discuss. And I thought it was extraordinary and very, very powerful and really important to get out there to the world. On the basis of that, I went out to Hong Kong, met up with Kate again, and the two of us, with Peter Woolrich as well, actually the three of us, headed into China. At the time, we had a, quote, secret camera with us, which you see in the film, which is the size of a small bag, actually the size of quite a big shoulder bag, to be honest. There's really nothing secret about our secret film, was there? And that was just a camera. Then we had to separately have a microphone sort of taped to the outside of the bag surreptitiously. And then we had to have a, a, a video camera in the bag that we were getting the input from the pinhole camera to. It was a real Heath Robinson affair, but this was, you know, 25 years ago in the early days of of secret filming. And yeah, we separated and from Hong Kong, we all entered China through different ports with different parts of this kit. We were initially at the early stages, very, very careful and very, very anxious about getting caught. And we had a cover story, printed business cards for ourselves. We were supposedly representing an American charity that was trying to find out more about conditions in Chinese orphanages with a view to helping. I mean, Bizarrely, our cover story later became a reality because as a result of the response to the film, we set up the Dying Rooms Trust, which later became Care of China's Orphan and Abandoned, and over 20-odd years raised millions to try and improve conditions for orphans in China. But obviously, we had no idea that at the time, we had no idea that was going to happen. We were just trying to give ourselves a little bit of protection in the event of the police turning up and asking us what exactly we were doing. And more on that later, for sure. I want to talk about the films you've chosen to talk about today, sort of a more general sense. They're all investigative in nature and focus on one topic in particular, which is often called the one-child policy in China. Can you talk about why this specific issue has captured and held your attention for so many years? It started for me because I was living in Hong Kong and it was right on my doorstep. I was in and out of China regularly doing different elements of life there before the dining rooms film. And I had no idea that the one child policy had these side effects. So I think for me, once I discovered that these side effects of the policy were absolutely kind of beyond words, frightening and horrendous, when you've witnessed that just once, even just for a few seconds, it's not something you forget. 
So for me, it was a very straightforward, I want to find out more about this. We need to see what's going on. I think for me, the fascination with the one-child policy obviously began that day that Kate walked into our office. I was aware of it. I'd vaguely heard of it, but I didn't really know anything about it other than that China had a one-child policy. And once we started making the film and we started digging into it and we found out about the sun preference and the fact that there is, at that time, there was no social security for parents, the girls marry out. So effectively, if your one child is a girl, then when she grows up, she leaves the family and you're left with no one to look after you in your old age. If you have a boy, then he'll marry, he'll bring in a wife and you'll have a two people to look after you in your old age, which clearly gives a very strong motivation to have a boy. And then when you start looking at the sex ratio disparities and the fact that millions of girls were disappearing, were clearly not surviving for one reason or another because of this son preference and because of this tradition of marrying out and its collision with the one-child policy, it just became fascinating. For me, it was it was a kind of no-brainer of, well, if television, if a documentary can have this impact, then why would you ever do anything other than make aim to make documentaries that have this kind of impact? And if I may, I would just like to come back to something else that happened to Brian and I in the very early days that made us realise how extraordinarily huge this issue was that we were in the middle of filming during the filming of the dining rooms was that we were sitting in a restaurant one evening and we had just been to visit an orphanage where they had a very high well we didn't no, at that time, but we didn't know what was high and what wasn't high. But certainly proportionate to the number of children in the orphanage, it was a very high death rate. And we took that death rate and we opened out the possible statistic of babies dying across China, given this one orphanage, which was in a pretty decent area. It wasn't remote. It wasn't the poorest. It wasn't the worst. And on the back of a beer mat, essentially, we worked out that there would be between 40 to 60 million men without women going forwards in time if this policy lasted, you know, 10 more years. And we did this basic sum. And we, do you remember that day, Brian, sitting in the restaurant when it was just this gobsmacking wake-up call that if what we were witnessing was going to show as a pattern across China, then we were in for something huge in the future. I wanted talk a bit more about the access and how you initially got the access. I understand that there was some surreptitious filming going on, but just generally, how did you enter these spaces and how did you present yourself? I think the very honest answer to that is we went in with a large degree of naivety in one sense, because we'd never done this before. But in another, I was very aware of what could happen to us if we were caught so our main plan was to stay under the radar. So we were to do everything possible to not be seen or found and try to find our way into as many orphanages as possible so that we could get a picture across China, not just in one part of or just the rural areas. So we did urban and rural. And obviously what we found was deeply, deeply shocking. And what we would literally do is we would arrive at a city and we'd get in a taxi and say, take us to the orphanage. 
and the taxi driver would invariably not know where the orphanage was, but would sort of head into town. We had an interpreter with us from Hong Kong, a Hong Kong-based interpreter with us. Um, we'd head into town. He'd pull over. He'd ask someone. They wouldn't know. He'd pull over, ask someone else. They'd go, oh, I think it's over in the West. And, and eventually we would find our, in most cases, we would find our way to the orphanage. And then we would literally just walk in. We'd walk in with the camera over my shoulder or over Peter's shoulder, shooting from the hip, as it were, as we walked in on the basis that we didn't know what we'd find and we didn't know how far we'd get. And then as soon as possible, because the kind of footage you actually get with a hidden camera is lousy, as soon as possible, we'd sort of reach in and take the camera out of the bag. And Peter and I would have split up and we'd be concentrating on filming. And Kate and the interpreter would be essentially running interference with the authorities. I think we were all terrified. (laughs) After a few orphanages, we got more confident. After a few more, we probably got overconfident. And we would just bluster our way through. There was one particular orphanage that we returned to because it was so extraordinary. We, We called it Yellowstone. I can't remember the name in Chinese, but it was Yellowstone Orphanage where we had this extraordinary image of these children tied to potty chairs and another I remember filming another child toddler coming in and just starting to headbutt one of these tied up babies and when you're filming that you know your sort of instinct immediately is to stop them because that's a horrible thing but you also know well I need to record this I need to record it I need to just allow this to play out for a, a little while and then stop them and I think after the film went out, it was obviously really difficult for anybody to enter the orphanages and the institutes because of our film. So that was hard, but we were the first to go in and do this and therefore we got away with it. I think I was I was scared. I think you were probably more scared, weren't you, at times? I think I was more scared because I lived in yeah. Hong Kong and I think I was much closer to what went on in China. And we used to have debates in the evening about different areas of China, what we would do in different situations. And I think because I was so much more aware, I was more frightened than Brian. And also I had a one-year-old daughter back at home. And so between Brian, Peter and myself, I was the only one with a child at that time. And I think I felt sometimes incredibly responsible with my filmmaking responsibilities and irresponsible as a mother and vice versa because I worried that if we were caught and I never returned home to Freddie my daughter you know probably people would say well what was she thinking and sometimes I thought that myself during filming but it always sort of came back into order and I thought no this is this is important this is really important and the more involved we got in the shoot the more committed I think I became to absolutely documenting exactly what we were looking at, documenting the truth and bringing this to a world audience in an attempt to try to do something about it. So thinking about the dynamics you're seeing play out and the ethical concerns that you're confronting at every point, I wanted to also ask about the way the orphanage workers were portrayed in the film At first, it seemed as though the dominant takeaway was that at the worst orphanages, the workers were potentially callous and didn't care about the children at all. But upon watching, I personally uh, had a different impression. 
and develop some empathy for the workers? And how do you see them now, 25 years later, do you see their role and the way that they were interacting with the children differently at all? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I think one of the first and most important things to remember is that these are women in the society. Nearly all the workers in the orphanages were women. And they are already second class citizens in China. So the women themselves will have grown up by being sort of the throwaway children. So with that in mind, you have to consider that how much they've had to take care of themselves and try and deal with that state of mind through childhood and into adulthood. And the orphanage workers were regarded as the lowest paid workers across the country. So their jobs were regarded as the ones on the rubbish tip, as were the children in the orphanages. So if you start with that mindset and you look at them through that filter, you have to appreciate that they've had to harden up to survive themselves. And so when we see a carer wash a child like a chicken, holding a child by the arms and the legs and really not dealing with the child as a human, you can forgive them because there is no training. There is no salary to inspire them. There are no incentives for them. And they are looking after the unwanted children. So I think we need to consider that when we look at how the carers in the orphanages are. I think the other thing was that one of the reasons we very much wanted to include Human Lee's orphanage in there was the fact that there are people who clearly are very compassionate and caring and who really do want to do the very best they can for the children. And Human Lee was an example of that. And as Kate said, they had no training. Their situation is to be understood. It was a systemic problem rather than a problem of individuals. I think that is definitely, it's one of those points in the film where I definitely had to step back as a viewer and saw it as like a larger system of failure and different, how different policies and different like lack of resources, lack of training, like contribute to this particular moment that you're witnessing on screen. 
So thinking about the film's impact and legacy in that way, I'd like to move on to the second film you made on this issue, which is Return to the Dying Rooms. Was there anything you learned during the initial shoot that you knew you wanted to do differently once you were working on the second film? Did you change your approach to filmmaking for Return to the Dying Rooms at all? I think we were better at it for Return to the Dying Rooms because we learned a lot through our experience of being incredibly naive, making our way across China to document the dying rooms. But also we had a deadline with our film and the transmission of it. And we had an awful lot of research and information in our system waiting for us to get to the point where we could film it. And very critically, we had access to the director of the Shanghai Orphanage and a young man called Ai Ming who had grown up in the orphanage. And he was unusual in that he was a man in the orphanage, but he was a disabled man, which is why he had been rejected by the family and put into the orphanage along with the unwanted girls. And we knew that working together with Human Rights Watch, that we needed to wait to get these two out of China And in fact, at that time, and it's safe to say this now because they're no longer there, but at that time they were brought into Hong Kong, which is where I was living, and they were put into a safe house, they were hidden away, and they were kept out of anybody's reach, if you like. And then we did the interviews with them, and you will see in Return to the Diamonds, they are enormously powerful because it's the director of the Shanghai Orphanage which was held up high as an adoption orphanage where people would come in and see lovely babies and adopt from there. But behind the scenes, it's a very different thing. There were children being purposefully neglected to death. They were selected for death within the orphanage. And the director speaks very openly about this in the interview once she was safe in Hong Kong. And then Ai Ming, who grew up in the system, was given a small camera, just a standard camera by the director. And he took photographs of children who were tied down with their limbs, you know, naked on these beds until they were basically starved and neglected to death. And he talks about this. So this was really serious information, interviews and footage on a level that we couldn't achieve in time with the dining rooms because we hadn't got these two critical people safely out. And I think that was a huge part of the second film, which took it to a different level because these are people speaking from within the system. And so the stakes were definitely raised, as you mentioned, for the second film, and that you actually had to provide protection for those who agreed to contribute. They could not speak in your account until they were in a different sort of region. How do you navigate that level of responsibility and those kind of stakes as a filmmaker? What actually happened was that we were approached by... Human Rights Watch, who had seen our film. So the dining rooms had been broadcast. They'd been in touch with Dr. Zhang and Ai Ming, and they were working on a plan to get them out of China, along with all the records that Dr. Zhang had, the extraordinary documentary evidence that she had of the policy of fatal neglect, as they describe it in the Human Rights Watch report. And they, in terms of putting together this report, which is, you know, inch and a half thick, they thought, oh, these people have been around China. We know a great deal about Shanghai and we've got paperwork on the rest of the country. 
but these journalists, they did something quite interesting. We should contact them. So they contacted us. And obviously, we said, this is amazing. And we really, really think that, you know, we should take this to Channel 4. And there should be a follow up And Channel 4. We're very positive about that, indeed. And what we were able to do was then, when the film went out, our first film went out, The Dying Rooms, the politicians were able to no one wants to go against China. No one wants to upset China. That's a, you know, just rather not do if you're a politician. So what happened was there was a huge public response in the UK initially, and then in every other country as it was shown around the world. But the politicians in those countries were able to go, oh, well, this is just a couple of journalists. And, you know, there's no real proof here. They've just filmed a few odd rooms and, you know, the the Chinese deny it. You know, the Chinese had produced their own version of the film in which they'd gone back to the same orphanages. And when they went there, strangely, things were very different. So they were able to deny responsibility to act and raise this with China on the basis that we're just journalists. There's no real evidence here. And then when Human Rights Watch approached us, What we were conscious of was the fact that they would produce a 250-page report with a great deal of detail and documentation and evidence in it, but that that report would probably get a few column inches in the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Guardian and the Times and so on. But the, the public wouldn't engage with it because, you know, it would just be a few column inches in the broadsheets and there wouldn't be any particularly sensational noises made about it. And so, again, the politicians would be able to duck the issue because it wouldn't really affect their constituents. There wouldn't be any public outcry. And what we argued to Human Rights Watch, and it was a very easy argument and they very quickly came on board, was that if we could coordinate the two and we could make a second film that would, again, raise the public profile of this issue very significantly and get the public irate about it, at the same time as they publish their report, which then proves this is you know a globally respected human rights organization saying here is the hard evidence here's the catalogs here are the death rates in these orphanages here are the photographs of babies here are the photographs of death certificates all showing the same thing all saying insufficient brain development then at that point it becomes much much harder and sure enough what happened for us was when our second film went out that coincided with the British Foreign Secretary being on a trade mission to China, much to his chagrin, because it meant that he had no choice but to answer questions about the dying rooms when he was in press conferences. The key thing was, as far as Dr. Zhang and and Ai Ming were concerned, they were under the protection of Human Rights Watch, and Human Rights Watch were responsible for getting them out of China and then resettling them, and they took that responsibility. So, Thankfully, we didn't have that responsibility, which would have been a grave one uh, indeed. It was a moment in time that was fortunate timing, really, wasn't it? That they were thick into their research when the dying rooms went out. And in fact, as Brian has just said, you know, the work that they put into their report was so detailed and intricate. We could never have included all of that in the film anyway, but a combination of their information and our filmmaking, I think, led to this far better film, the second film round. So moving on to the final film that we are going to discuss today, which is One Child Nation, which is a more recent documentary that also tackles what's often called the one child policy. 
When did you see this film and what impression did it leave on you? So I saw it at Sheffield Documentary Festival about 18 months ago, and it was followed by an interview with Nanfu. And I, I just thought it was superb. I mean, not only a superb piece of filmmaking, but as someone who made The Dying Rooms and Return to the Dying Rooms, I was looking at it going, oh, God, if only we'd been able to get that sort of access, if only we'd been able to get people to, to talk in that way. And it just felt like it was so pleasing to see the kind of detail that we'd suspected 25 years earlier, but to see it confirmed and to see people talking about the kind of things that had been going on, you know, it hit me in the guts when I saw it. But what I think made it one step greater in many ways was that it was coming from a lady who, the director, Nanfu Wang, she was from within the system. You know, I think that's the big, big difference between the Dying Rooms, Return to the Dying Rooms and One Child Nation, is for everything that Brian and I could work to achieve with our film, we weren't from within. And I think her, you know, she'd been pregnant, had her own child. She returned having been born into the One Child Policy. And she went back to see the auntie, the midwife. She went back to her own village. She got her uncle, auntie. She was, had her whole family. And what was very apparent was that they were all involved and complicit. And that's deeply shocking because you're seeing it now from the inside out where everyone's saying they had to be part of it. They had to carry out the enforced sterilizations, the enforced abortions. They had to put the girls away. They had to lose the girls because that was necessary, because that was required of them. That I found deeply, deeply moving that from within you could see all these people who were part of the enforcing of the one-child policy. And Kate, over email, you praised the film for its storytelling. I'm also interested in this idea that documentaries that are investigative in nature aren't just about the access you get or what you uncover, but also the rigor, the care, and in the case of One Child Nation, the nuance and the moral clarity with which the facts can be presented. Can you talk about what you admire specifically about One Child Nation storytelling? I think the fact that the two female directors examine and inform really thoroughly and objectively. I think even though both of them were from within the policy, they could be objective. And their style of storytelling, together with the hard facts that they were putting in there, was just beautifully crafted objectively. And for me, it was a triumph of filmmaking, even though they and their families and the next generations will suffer. They could really reach us on a very deep level because of their honest storytelling. How do you see The Dying Rooms as being in conversation with films like One Child Nation or other documentaries that do investigate these types of issues? Or speaking more generally, what do you think is the legacy of The Dying Rooms? And how does One Child Nation fit into that larger conversation for you? One Child Nation is today's story. It is the contemporary story. It is the 2020, 2019 story of One Child Policy. When we were filming The Dying Rooms and returned to The Dying Rooms, 
the, the policy was alive and we were in the middle of it. We're now out of the other side of it. And I think One Child Nation totally complements and builds on everything we were saying in the dying rooms. Because a lot of what is said in One Child Nation, we actually you know, cover in the dying rooms, but it confirms it in a way that proves everything we were saying. There's an interesting development in terms of the progression from the dying rooms through Channel and Children, which we haven't really talked about, but was sort of 10 years on from the dying rooms through to One Child Nation in the, in the dying rooms, you had three Westerners going into China, wandering around the place, turning over some stones and finding some pretty grim things. And then going back to the safety of London and two of those Westerners then editing that film together and saying, here's an image, here's a picture of China and the, and the one child policy. And then with One Child Nation, you kind of get all the way to it's an indigenous voice telling an indigenous story. So that sort of empowerment of indigenous voices, if you like, is very clearly set out with the progression of those three, four films from us going in and, you know, being all sort of clever and we're telling you what's happening and, you know, we know through to an Indigenous filmmaker, albeit one that grew up in America, but still she's from China, she's going back, she speaks the language, she's of the culture, and she's telling her own culture story rather than observing it from the outside. And before we wrap up today, is there anything else you'd like to add to this conversation about The Dying Rooms and thinking, taking that long 25-year look at the film, how do you see it today? Um, I didn't have any idea quite what was going to happen as a result of the film we were making. We were younger, we were naive, we went in with absolute determination to document the truth, but we had no idea what we were walking into. And by the time we'd finished editing both films, they'd both been screened, and we'd seen this global media mayhem as a result of taking the lid off the one-child policy. Politicians, anyone going into China had to put it to the top of their agenda, you know, from corporations to schools, universities, individuals, charities and organizations. They all woke up to the fact that there was a real big issue in China. And the reaction and all the work we did to follow up on the film, to keep China's one-child policy in the news. We kept reporting on it for years and years. And people came to see us as professionals. Really, we're just filmmakers. But we went on every TV and radio program to keep the issue alive and kicking and make sure it wasn't dropped. And it taught me the power, the absolute power of filmmaking and using the documentary format as a way of telling stories that bring the real characters who are struggling or without a voice or in different situations, whether it's slavery, trafficking, the illegal organ transplant trade. If we can use our skills as filmmakers to bring these issues alive on our screens and make people aware of what's going on, then that's a great and important job that we can continue to do. And I think we'll probably both do this till the day we die because it's under our skin, it's in our blood now. But it all started with the dying rooms. 
Brian, Kate, thank you so much for joining me today on the Doc Exchange. It's an, a pleasure to talk with you today. Cheers. Thank you for inviting us. It's been lovely chatting to you. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Doc Exchange, a real stories podcast, is a Little Dot Studios production in partnership with the Grierson Trust. I'm your host, June Jennings. The Doc Exchange is produced by Nicole Davis and Annie Hughes. Our executive producer is Paul Wolf. Our music is by Dusty Dex and sourced through Epidemic Sound. We're edited by Content is Queen. And our artwork is by Nash Kasich. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. If you want to watch even more great documentaries, join us at Real Stories on YouTube, Amazon, Facebook, and other platforms. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.